Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And before we get started, I wanted to let you know that today's episode will be a solo episode, and here is why. Today, we are going to be talking about the serial killer, Dean Coral, commonly referred to as the Candyman, and his crimes involved the murders of at least two dozen teenage boys. If you've listened for a while, you know there are just some cases Austin cannot stomach, and I'm not going to put him through that. So without further ado, I'm here to tell you the story of Dean Coral. Dean Arnold Coral was born on Christmas Eve of 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the first child born to his mom, Mary Emma Robison, and father, Arnold Edwin Coral. When he was about three years old, his parents had a little brother, Stanley. Their father, Arnold, was very strict with his sons, and their mom, Mary, was very protective of them. So the couple often argued and couldn't get on the same page about how to raise their sons. And their marriage eventually became so fractured that the pair decided to divorce in 1946 when Dean was only six years old. That same year, Dean came down with rheumatic fever, which is a condition that can cause inflammation in your heart, joints, brain, and skin. Untreated, it can become a very serious condition. And because of this, he was disallowed to participate in PE or any other kind of physical activity. After the divorce, Mary moved her and the boys to Memphis, Tennessee, because their dad was drafted to the Air Force and stationed in Memphis. So Mary wanted to keep the boys close to their father. In 1950, Mary and Arnold decided to reconcile and remarry. They moved to Pasadena, Texas, but again, couldn't make it work and divorced again in 1953, this time for good. Mary maintained custody of the boys again, but she still made an effort to foster a relationship between the boys and their father. And then she married a man named Jake West, a traveling clock salesman. They moved to Vidor, Texas, where the couple had a daughter, Joyce. After the birth of Dean's half-sister, Mary and Jake decided to start their own company making candies out of their garage, and they called it Pecan Prince. Mary would later state that her inspiration for this came from a pecan salesman showing up at her house while she was in the middle of baking pies. This salesman told her, if you've got that much energy, why don't you start making candy? So she did. Everyone participated in the functions of this candy business, including the kids. Dean would work day and night helping his mom with the candy business while he still worked on completing his education. Jake would travel to sell the candy. While in school, Dean was pretty shy and introverted. He really kept to himself and played the trombone in the band. He dated a few girls, but was otherwise pretty forgettable in school. He made good grades and just kept his head down, graduating in 1958. Vidor, Texas is a pretty small city with less than 10,000 people. Most of their candy sales were in Houston, so the family decided to relocate once again to be closer to the big city. But while the rest of his family settled into the Houston Heights area, Dean moved up to Indiana temporarily to help with his grandmother after she'd been widowed. While he was there, he met a girl and the two started dating. And at one point, she actually proposed to him, but he turned it down and then the pair broke up before Dean returned to Houston. In 1962, Dean moved back to Houston, but at this point, his mom and stepdad were beginning to feel a strain on their marriage. 
They eventually divorced the following year with Jake taking ownership of Pecan Prince and Dean's mom starting a new candy company called Coral Candy Company. She made Dean the vice president and his little brother Stanley the secretary and treasurer. They hired some new people to help with the supply and demand, and one of those people was a teenaged boy who went to Dean's mom to complain that he had made some sexual advances towards him, and in response to those allegations, she fired the boy. In 1964, Dean was drafted to the U.S. Army and ultimately stationed in Fort Hood, Texas to work as a radio repairman. He managed to maintain a good reputation in the military, never getting into any trouble, but he hated being in the military. He did, however, come to the realization while he was in the military, Mm -hmm. surrounded by men, that he was a homosexual. It was during this short stint in the military that he experienced his first sexual encounter with a man, but he still wanted out. He applied multiple times to be discharged, citing that he was needed with his family's business. He was granted this request in 1965 after only 10 months of service. In 65, the family business moved to a new location right across the street from an elementary school. Dean was known to stand outside of this school and hand out free candy to the kids, earning him the moniker Candyman and Pied Piper. Over time, Dean continued to hire teenage boys to help with the candy business, and in the back of their shop, he set up a pool table for the boys to hang out. In 1967, Dean befriended a 12-year-old boy named David Owen Brooks. David Owen Brooks was in sixth grade when he met Dean Coral, and he wore big glasses, which often got him made fun of by other kids. But Dean didn't make fun of him. He gave him free candy and let him hang out at the candy shop. They grew closer, and David would often travel with Dean to make candy deliveries. Sometimes David would ask Dean for money, and Dean would give it to him. And Dean slowly and methodically groomed David into becoming more than just a friend. And a couple years into their friendship, Dean came on to David. David wasn't gay, though, so Dean would often have to entice David with gifts or money to allow him to do these inappropriate things with him. In 1970, David's parents divorced and split custody of David. At first, David lived with his father in Houston while his mother moved to Beaumont, a city about an hour and a half east of Houston. But when David was 15 years old, he dropped out of high school and moved to Beaumont to live with his mom, traveling to Houston sporadically to visit his dad and Dean. When he would visit Dean, he would stay at his apartment, and as this went on, David eventually decided to move back to Houston permanently. He didn't really get along with his dad, Alton, who was a paving contractor. Alton was the embodiment of toxic masculinity, so he picked on David for being weak, for wearing glasses, and sometimes just looking sickly. David was drawn to Dean because Dean didn't pick on him like his dad did. At this point, Dean's mom and half-sister Joyce moved to Colorado after choosing to close the candy company. After they moved, Dean would occasionally talk to his mom on the phone, but she never saw him in person again. Now, without the candy company, Dean had to find new employment, so he became an electrician for the Houston Lighting and Power Company, commonly known as HLNP. But this didn't deter his relationship with David. Dean still made sure to make time for him. David was good friends with another kid his age, Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., who commonly went by Wayne. Wayne was about 15 years old at the time and was unaware of the extent of Dean and David's relationship, but he definitely picked up on the vibes that Dean gave off and assumed that Dean was gay. 
Wayne and David were both high school dropouts living in the Houston Heights area, which at that time was considered to be a low-income area riddled with drug use, alcohol abuse, and disrepair throughout the area. So part of Dean's allure to the boys was that he appeared to be stable with a steady job and no drug or alcohol abuse. And Dean catered to the boys, not only setting up that pool table in the back of his shop, but also taking them for rides on his motorcycle and renovating his van with cushions, carpet, and a TV so they could go hang out at the beach. But they had yet to become aware of a very dark secret Dean was hiding. On September 23rd of 1970, a student from the University of Texas in Austin by the name of Jeffrey Allen Conan was hitchhiking with a friend of his. He was trying to hitchhike to Houston for a weekend at home with his family. He was carrying a red plaid bowling bag and a scholarship check made out for $250 that he planned to deposit once he got to Houston. He was dropped off alone, and then it's assumed he was offered a ride by Dean Coral to take him the rest of the way home, but he was never seen again. In December of 1970, David showed up to Dean's apartment unannounced, and when he opened Dean's bedroom door, he found Dean sexually assaulting two boys who were naked and tied to his bed. Dean whipped around and asked David what he was doing there. Stunned, David turned around and left. Dean tried to assure him that he was part of this gay pornography ring that he'd been paid to send those boys out to California for a photo shoot, and he promised David that he would buy him a car if he would just stay silent about what he witnessed. Soon after, David became the proud new owner of a green Chevy Corvette. It's believed that the two boys could have been Jimmy Glass and his best friend Danny Yates. Jimmy Glass was this adorable 14-year-old kid with big dimples hugging the sides of his wide, symmetrical smile. He had a haircut that swooped over his forehead, giving Justin Bieber a run for his money. He wore trendy clothes and leather beaded necklaces. Danny Yates, Jimmy's best friend at the time, was equally handsome, and he had curly brown hair, beautiful big blue eyes, and the lightest bit of peach fuzz on his face. According to his girlfriend Betty at the time, Danny accompanied Jimmy, Jimmy's dad, and Jimmy's older brother, Willie, to an anti-drug youth rally at the Evangelistic Temple in the Houston Heights area on December 13th. Jimmy's older brother, Willie, remembers during the middle of the event, Jimmy and Danny getting up to go to the bathroom, and then they just never came back. They literally vanished into thin air. Unfortunately, the police didn't really look into their disappearance, they chalked it up to the boys being runaways because of a time when Jimmy tried to leave home after a fight with his dad over the length of his hair. And as for Danny, someone came forward alleging that they had seen him at a house known for runaways, so they brushed his disappearance off as well. This was an infuriating common practice of police at the time. The 70s were a big movement for hippies, and it wasn't uncommon for teens to run away and hitchhike their way across the country. The police vowed not to investigate disappearances unless there was evidence of foul play, so the devastated families were on their own. Dean later admitted to David that he killed the two boys and offered him today's equivalent of about $1,500 for any boy that David brought him, and David accepted his offer. On January 30th of 1971, Dean and David were driving along when they came upon two boys, brothers, who were on their way to a local bowling alley. 
Donald Waldrop was only 15 and his little brother Jerry was 13. David admitted that Dean picked them both up and brought them to his apartment and David watched as Dean strangled them both. The boy's dad, Everett, told the Houston Chronicle that he filled out a missing persons report and then camped outside of the police department for months on end. He admitted he was there more than the police chief himself. They would ask him why he was there. His boys were obviously runaways, despite the fact that they disappeared less than a mile from the church where Jimmy and Danny were abducted. On March 9th, Dean and David came upon one of David's friends, Randall Harvey, who was riding his bike to work. They stopped to offer him a ride, put his bike in the back of Dean's truck, and took Randall to Dean's apartment. There, he was raped, tortured, and then shot in the head. Then David helped Dean load up Randall's body and drove him to a storage shed Dean had rented where they buried his body. This storage shed was intended to store Dean's boat at a local lake, so it's often referred to as the boat shed. On May 29th of 1971, David Hillegeist and Gregory Malley Winkle were walking to the community pool. David was 14 and Gregory was 16. Both of the boys were familiar with Dean as they'd both spent time at the candy factory years prior. Dean and David abducted the boys under unassuming pretenses, brought them to Dean's apartment where he then murdered the boys. They were then brought to the boat shed where they were buried alongside the other boys. The same night the boys disappeared, Gregory made a phone call to his mother telling her that he went to Freeport to go swimming with some of his friends, and it's believed that Dean forced him to make that phone call to throw off suspicion that he was actually in trouble. When Gregory's mom went to the police and she told them about that phone call, they assumed the boys were just runaways again. And without the help from police, Gregory Winkle's mom and David Hillegeist's parents did everything in their power to search for their boys. They printed flyers, they followed any leads despite how heartbreaking they were. One of those rumors was that the boys could have been trafficked into a homosexual sex trafficking ring so they would park outside of a local gay bar in hopes of seeing the boys go in or out. Then David's mom told the police that she had learned that Gregory had a friend who drove a Plymouth GTX. She added that she had seen a GTX slowly strolling through her neighborhood with the license plate TMF724. But the police never looked into it, and if they had, they would have learned that the car belonged to Dean Coral. On August 17th of 1971, Dean and David were driving when they spotted one of David's friends, Reuben Watson Haney, walking home from the movie theater. David invited him to a party at a nearby apartment. The apartment was Dean's. When Reuben got to the apartment, Dean strangled him, and then the two buried his body at the boat shed. Almost every time a murder occurred, Dean would then move to a new apartment. So almost every location was at a different place, making it even harder to pinpoint who could be behind this. The following month, two more boys were killed by being lured by Dean and David, David later admitted that one of the boys was even kept alive for four days before he was finally murdered, but the identities of either of those boys was never released. Now, out of respect for the victims and their families, 
I refuse to go into further detail about the sexual abuse Dean performed on his victims. It is absolutely heinous. And to think that these boys' families eventually had to learn those details makes me physically sick. So if you want to learn more, it's out there. I'm not going to talk about it here. In the winter of 1971, David and Wayne were still pretty good friends. Wayne regularly spent time with Dean and David, but it wasn't until that winter that they clued Wayne in on what they'd been up to. At first, it seemed possible that Dean intended to make Wayne another one of his victims, but Wayne was a little rough around the edges and he liked to party, so Dean assumed that maybe he might make another good accomplice. And that's when Dean made Wayne an offer. He would pay Wayne, today's equivalent of $1,500, the same as he was paying David, if he would bring him young boys, but he told Wayne that he was a part of this homosexual pornography ring and he was recruiting boys for photos. The same thing he told David in the beginning. Wayne wanted to think about it. He stood on this for months and unfortunately, rather go to the police with this information, Wayne eventually accepted Dean's offer and started working for him alongside his friend David. One afternoon, Wayne was driving around with Dean when they spotted a young teen with long hair and asked him if he wanted to hang out and smoke some pot with them. The boy got into Dean's car and Dean brought him back to his apartment. Then Wayne left and the next day received his payment. At the time, he had no idea that Dean killed the boy after he sexually assaulted him. Then Wayne coerced his friend, Frank Aguirre, a co-worker of his from Long John Silver's, to meet his friend Dean. Dean, David, Wayne, and Frank all went to Dean's apartment to party, and at some point in the night, Dean suggested that they play the handcuff game, where they all put on a pair of handcuffs to see who can escape them first. Once they got Frank into handcuffs, Dean led him back to his room where he assaulted him before strangling him. Then the three of them brought Frank's body to High Island to bury him. Now, High Island is a beach area about an hour east of Houston. On April 20th of 1972, Wayne lured another one of his friends to Dean, a boy named Mark Scott. Mark was only 17 years old and was friends with Wayne, who was also 17 years old. In fact, Mark's mom remembered a party that Mark threw where Wayne attended, and Wayne apparently had such a good time, he was the last person to leave the party. Mark was one of few who fought back against Dean, and he fought hard, at one point even grabbing a knife to stab Dean, but unfortunately, he just barely missed. During the fight, Wayne retrieved a pistol and pointed it at his friend, at which point Mark realized he was not going to make it out alive. He, too, was buried at High Island Beach. A few days later, Mark's mom, Mary, received a sloppily written postcard from Mark. He wrote, quote, How are you doing? I am in Austin for a couple of days. I found a good job. I am making $3 an hour. End quote. His parents refused to believe what they were reading. There was no way their son, only a junior in high school at the time, would just leave without warning. On May 21st of 1972, Wayne and David assisted Dean in abducting two more boys, Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. Billy was 17 at the time and used to sell candy door-to-door for the Coral family. He was hanging out with his friend Johnny at the time when the pair decided to leave to go get some drinks at a local convenience store. 
Dean, David, and Wayne abducted the boys and brought them to Dean's apartment where they were killed. A little over a year later, they also abducted Billy's younger brother, Michael, while he was on his way to get his hair cut. On July 19th, 17-year-old Stephen Kent Sickman was abducted as he was leaving a party in the Houston Heights area. When his remains were eventually found in the boat shed, he'd suffered multiple broken ribs, and it was clear he'd been strangled with a nylon cord that was left with his remains. A month later, on August 21st, Roy Eugene Bunton was only 19 when he disappeared on his way to work. His remains were found in the boat shed, and he'd been shot twice in the head at close range. On October 3rd, Wally J. Simino and Richard Edward Hembry were 13 and 14 years old. They were lured by David into his green Corvette and taken to Dean's apartment. Wally tried to call his mom when he was at Dean's apartment, but the call was disconnected. He was then strangled, and his friend Richard was shot in the mouth and strangled. Both boys were found buried in the boat shed. On November 1st, Rusty Branch, the son of a Houston Police Department police officer, was one of the boys that apparently fought back against Dean. So in retaliation, Dean mutilated him in the most disturbing ways and tortured him before he finally took his life. Rusty's dad, Willard, ultimately died from a heart attack during the search for his son. Some might even say he died from a broken heart. Two weeks later, on November 15th, Richard Allen Kepner vanished while he was on his way to a payphone to call his fiance. His remains were found buried at High Island Beach. In February of 1973, Joseph Allen Lyles, only 17, was taken from his home, which was on the same street as David's. He was also an acquaintance of Dean's, and he was buried at Jefferson County Beach. From February to June, there was a gap where no murders were committed, and it's reported that Dean suffered from a condition called hydrocele, which is a condition where fluid builds up in a body cavity, and it most commonly occurs in the testicles. And I am just choosing to believe that he had this buildup of fluid in his testicles, and I hope that it was excruciating. Nonetheless, it eventually resolved, and the killing continued in June of 1973. Did you know that traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? It can lead to acne, allergies, and stuffy noses, and it's just gross. Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding, such as sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. I am so excited because we just got ours in the color sand, but I was super tempted to get them in the color sage. It's this beautiful like evergreen color. It's so popular. It has already sold out four times and they just keep restocking it because it's that pretty. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets, which means no more gross odors. Using silver-infused fabrics inspired by NASA, Miracle-Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so then you get better sleep every night. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and they feel as nice, if not nicer, than sheets used by some five-star hotels. 
Miracle sheets are the perfect gift for your spouse, friends, or family. Who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets? And since these come with three free towels, you get two gifts in one just in time for the holidays. Stop sleeping on bacteria. It's gross. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Start sleeping clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash mama to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. You can save over 40%. And if you use our code mama, that's M-A-M-A at checkout, you will receive three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product. It's backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you will get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash M-A-M-A and use the code MAMA to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash mama to treat yourself, a friend, or loved one this holiday season. Billy Lawrence was only 15 years old when he was abducted. Billy was a friend of Wayne's and he was lured by Wayne's invitation to go fishing with friends. He was kept alive for a few days because apparently Dean really liked him. Dean forced him to write a letter to his father that said, quote, Dear Daddy, I have decided to go to Austin because I have got a good job offer. I am sorry that I decided to leave, but I just had to go. P.S. I will be back in late August. Hope you understand, but I had to go. Daddy, I hope you know I love you. Your son, Billy. His remains were later found at Lake Sam Rayburn, And it appears that he was probably aware of his fate when he wrote that letter, which is just so, so heartbreaking. Also found at Lake Sam Rayburn were the remains of Raymond Stanley Blackburn, who was a 20-year-old new father from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was in the Houston Heights area working on a construction project, and he was abducted while he was hitchhiking back to Louisiana to return to his family. In July, Wayne also lured another one of his friends, Homer Garcia, from a driver's ed class that the two were enrolled in. Homer was shot in the head and chest and left in Dean's bathtub to bleed out before they buried his body at Lake Sam Rayburn. He was only 15 years old. On July 25th, Wayne was walking with his friend Marty Ray Jones and his roommate Charles Carey Cobble. Marty was 18 and Charles was 17. Charles was newly married, and his 14-year-old wife, Deborah, was pregnant with their first child. Charles attempted to call his father to tell him hysterically that Marty and him were abducted by drug dealers, but it was too late. Marty was strangled with a cord, and Charles was shot twice in the head. Both boys were found in the boat shed. On August 3rd, 13-year-old James Stanton Dremala was abducted while he was riding his bike. He was forced to call his parents and tell them that he was at a party before he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. Now, at this point, you can see that Wayne was acting as the main accomplice once David started pulling away. In the summer of 1973, David was getting pretty serious about his girlfriend, and he actually got her pregnant. So he proposed to his girlfriend and continued to distance himself from Wayne and Dean. 
but everything came to a head on the night of August 8th, 1973. Wayne invited his friend Timothy Curley to a party at Dean's house. Timothy was dating a girl named Rhonda Williams at the time. Oddly enough, Rhonda also dated Frank Aguirre, one of Dean's victims, when he disappeared. When they got to Dean's, Dean was furious that Wayne brought a girl with them, but Wayne insisted that they only brought her because she had been assaulted by her father that night and didn't want to go back home. Once Dean calmed down, they all drank and sniffed paint fumes until about midnight when they all passed out. While they were passed out, Dean bound all three of them by their wrists and ankles, Wayne included. When Wayne came to, he was being handcuffed by Dean. His mouth had been taped shut and he was hogtied. Beside him were Timothy and Rhonda, completely naked and tied up as well. Wayne tried to reason with Dean, telling him that he was sorry for bringing a girl to his place, but that he would kill her if it would make things right. They bargained back and forth for about half an hour until Dean finally released Wayne. Wayne helped to tie the couple to Dean's torture board. This was a device that he commonly used on some of his past victims. Dean then began to molest Timothy and looked over at Wayne, implying that he needs to be doing the same thing to Rhonda. But Rhonda started waking up and asked if what she was seeing was real. When Wayne told her that it was, she asked him, are you going to do something about it? Something in that moment snapped in Wayne, and he grabbed Dean's pistol, pointing it at Dean. Wayne told him he had gone far enough and he couldn't do this anymore. He said he kept killing all of his friends, so Dean retorted, Then kill me, Wayne. You won't do it. And just then, Wayne fired the pistol at Dean's head. The bullet hit him straight in the forehead, but somehow didn't penetrate his skull or incapacitate him because Dean still kept coming towards Wayne. Then Wayne said he shot him twice in the shoulder, once in the back of the shoulder as he turned around, and then twice in the small of his back. Dean fell against the wall, down to the floor, where he then bled out. Wayne says his only regret in regards to killing Dean is that Dean isn't here now so he could tell him what a good job he did killing him. After Dean was killed, Timothy insisted that they call the police, and when the police arrived, Wayne told them what happened and was taken to the police station to be questioned further. They brought David in as well. At first, the police were skeptical of what they were telling them, that all of these missing boys in the area were directly related to one person, Dean. But Wayne agreed to lead them to the burial sites of the bodies. And I can't help but be a little frustrated that even when they had someone in their presence admitting to knowing what happened to all these boys who had gone missing from such a small area in such a short span, that they still refused to believe it. Once they started digging, though, they found the bodies of the missing boys one by one. Most of them were covered in a layer of lime and wrapped in plastic. Some of the boys were still in the clothing that they had disappeared in, while some of the others were buried with the tools used to kill them. All of them were in various states of decomposition. David admitted that he knew what Dean was doing, but denied having any involvement in the actual killings. But Wayne admitted to killing at least nine of the 28 victims in a written statement. Wayne and David were tried separately for their involvement in the crimes. 
The details during the testimonies were so disturbing that a lot of people had to leave during the court proceedings to regain their composure. In one case, they described as two boys were abducted at the same time, and they were forced to fight each other to the death with the promise that whoever beat the other one to death would then be set free. So they fought each other for hours before finally being separated, tied to their own torture boards, and killed. And these boys were friends. Wayne Henley was found guilty for six of the murders despite his prior confession of nine. He was sentenced to six consecutive 99-year sentences, totaling 594 years in prison. But he appealed his conviction based on technicalities and actually won his appeal, granting him a new trial in 1979. But his new trial resulted in the same conviction and the same sentence. He's currently serving his time at the Mark Stiles Unit in Jefferson County, Texas. He's been applying for parole since 1980, but every application has been denied. His next date for eligibility for parole is in October of 2025. David Brooks was found guilty for only one of the murders, the murder of Billy Lawrence. He was sentenced to life in prison. He served his time at the Terrell Unit in Rocheron, Rocheron, Texas, and on May 28th of 2020, he died from COVID-19 complications at the age of 65. 28 victims that we know of, literally the worst serial killer in U.S. history at that time. How was it possible that so many boys could have disappeared from a small area of Houston? It's literally two by three miles without anyone realizing what the hell was going on. I guess you have to consider that at the time in the early 70s, there was no internet, so you didn't have social media to spread word like wildfire. You did have computers, but not like today where you could create these databases and run analytics through various computers. And cell phones weren't a thing yet. Most people just had landlines. Even cable TV was still up and coming in the early 70s. Despite this being such a salacious story, it was practically swept under the rug and rarely talked about to this day. Even as a true crime podcaster, I wasn't even aware of the details of this story until someone recommended it to me, despite that his number of victims rivals those of Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy. Ted Bundy didn't appear until later in 1974, and John Wayne Gacy wasn't apprehended for his crimes until 1978. Now, if you've heard our 100th episode on John Wayne Gacy, you may note that a lot of the things that Dean did were reminiscent of the tactics John Wayne Gacy used, but he didn't actually come along until a few years after Dean. So could John Wayne Gacy have picked up on some of the things Dean did and used them as his own tools? One thing that comes to mind is that John Wayne Gacy would play this game where he would he would tie wrists together, not like handcuffs, but he was using this special knot of his and challenge these boys to get out of the knot. And it sounds like a similar thing to what Dean was doing by playing this handcuff game. As of today, there are no commemorations or memorials to honor the boys who were murdered in the Houston Heights area. Some of the current residents who have actually heard about the mass murders assume that it's nothing more than a myth. And I still just can't wrap my head around the fact that Houston PD refused to investigate the disappearances of these boys, despite that two dozen boys went missing from the same small area in a span of about two years. 
It's absolutely bonkers to me. Now, I want to note that Skip Hollinsworth, a writer for Texas Monthly, wrote a substantial piece on this story, and that is where I found the majority of my material for this episode. So I will put the link to that article in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening to Mama Mystery. Until next week, Mama Mystery out. Mama Mystery.